Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. At the beginning of the new year, many people set fitness goals to get into better shape. They train their bodies by eating healthier food or by exercising more. But what can you do when you want to get into better spiritual shape? In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright talks about spiritual training and how to incorporate it into our daily lives. As we go into our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. If you would turn in your scripture to the gospel according to Luke, we'll be reading in chapter 2, beginning at verse 39. Reading to the end of that chapter. This is the the last uh, of the narrative that includes our glimpse into the life of young Jesus, beginning at verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he, came, he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, in these moments, may your Holy Spirit so richly abide in our midst that all of the things that that would distract us, would be removed from our midst, that our hearts and our minds would be fully attentive and open to you. Grant the leading and power of your Holy Spirit so that I may speak words of your truth, to speak them in simplicity, with grace, so that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For every good thing that we experience and receive now, we offer only to you the praise 
and the glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I have never personally served in the military. Um, it's one of those things that at times I look back and think uh, how nice it would have been, you know, maybe I missed a good opportunity, but you can't go back, can you? But regardless of what uh, branch of the service one a person joins, there is a period that we usually refer to as basic training. It goes under other titles like boot camp, or there's probably a more official term for it. But it's a, a, a period of training in which uh, some basic skills are taught, regardless of what that, uh, what that service person's uh, specialty or area of service is going to be. There are some basic skills that they all need to learn and some basic shaping uh, of that person's character that, that needs to happen. And so that person will go through that training in order to shape them and prepare them for, for their service so that they may serve and serve well. Um, the Christian faith has also a, a sense of basic training to it. It's not just a, a, a basic 8 to 12 week beginner's course that you, that you accomplish and then you, you don't do it again, but really it's more of an ongoing kind of training to it. And that, that training that we subject ourselves to in an ongoing fashion has a lot of routine to it. It, it builds regularity. It, it has a lot of things that we do over and over and over again. Um, that, that, that is part of what it's like to live the Christian faith. And so that training becomes a part of what we do. We see that happen as we look, we take this snapshot of Jesus and the Holy Family in the early parts of Jesus' life. It, it becomes apparent to us that that was true for them, even as it is true for us. Now, in the Christian faith, there are certain things to which we point, and we refer to them using the word mystery. Usually, when we talk about the mysteries of the faith, we are pointing to the things that we confess to be true, but at the same time, we admit that they are things that stretch, if not exceed, our ability to comprehend. We, we believe it's true, and yet we say our mind, it's, it's beyond what our minds can understand. The incarnation in Jesus Christ is one of those mysteries. For, for centuries, the Christian faith has proclaimed about the person of Jesus Christ that he is fully divine and fully human. If you put that in mathematical terms, it, it starts to violate the rules. 100% God and 100% human. Now, if you're in a tradition that says essentially that being God and being human are one and the same thing, that's not a problem, but that's not the Judeo-Christian worldview. To be, to be God and to be human are two very different things. And so to say about Jesus Christ that he's fully divine and fully human is something that we confess to be true, and yet we stand back and say it's a mystery. 
but we believe it. And it's that personhood that we observe even in this early narrative. This child, this 12-year-old young man who is brought by his parents to Jerusalem for a religious feast. There's, there's something that this text says to us twice, and I want to point it out. You find it in verse 40, and then you also find it in verse 52. Verse 40 says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 52 says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Interesting statements, aren't they? I have shared with you before, and it's funny how there are certain things from your life that just seem never to leave your memory. I was traveling on a long trip by myself one night. It was fairly late at night. I was listening to a radio station. It was a religious station. This preacher came on. I don't know who it was. I don't know what church it was. It, it was somebody I'd never heard of. But he, he got into the sermon, and his text was the same text out of Luke 2 that we read just a moment ago. And as he got into his message, he made reference to this idea that Jesus continued to grow and become strong. And then just before I really lost the station since I was traveling away from it, I heard him ask the question, if you are God, how is it that you continue to grow? I was curious about how he would unpack that in his message. I was not so curious that I turned the car around and went back to listen to it, but I was curious how he would continue to go with that, and, and I lost the station and I didn't get to hear the rest of his message. But it's an interesting question. If you are God, how is it that you're growing in wisdom and, and stature and, and, and things like that? Well, that kind of falls into the mystery, doesn't it? This person who is fully God and yet fully human. I think there's an answer to it, and you and I could have conversation about what, where, where we would lean one way or the other on the answer. But since we're talking about a, uh, the, the mystery of the incarnation in Jesus Christ, it kind of lends itself to an being answered in one, or one of two ways. Some of us would sit back and say, well, um, well, wait a minute. Let me, let me take you to another part of the text first. Let's make the journey. Jesus and his family come to Jerusalem. They spend the days of the feast there, and they go back home. On their way back home, they realize that Jesus is not with them. I'm going to say that at some point, you have done what most other readers have done. You have read this text and said, how in the world do you lose track of your... You make a day's journey, and you don't know your son is with you, and the son is not with you? Now, in today's society, what do we think about Mary and Joseph? 
questionable parentage. Well, let's, after naming the elephant in the room, let, let's just put that aside. Our, our context today is, is quite different from theirs. It was not uncommon for them to travel, travel in large groups of friends and family from, from their own towns. Uh, it, it, we, we, we probably don't have much, if any, reason to point fingers at Mary and Joseph and call them bad parents just because it took them the better part of a day to realize that Jesus wasn't with the group that was traveling. So let's just kind of put that aside. The parents realize that Jesus is not with them. They go back to Jerusalem. Now, it is true that Jerusalem uh, of, of that day is not as large as the Jerusalem of today. But still, it was a, it was a happening place. Many people coming and going, lots of things going on. And so it takes them a while. They're, they, they're looking. They're trying to unpack, you know, where, where in the world could he be? Could he have been at this place? Could he have been in the market? Could he, you know, they're, they're looking all over town. Finally, they go to the temple. They find him there. He is engaging himself with the elders, with the teachers. He is asking questions of them. He's in conversation. The people who are with him are amazed that this, this 12-year-old boy seems to have the, the insight that he does. And when the parents find him, they, they, you know, they're, they're frantic as, as you would be if you were the parents and they kind of say in, in a bit of a chastising way, you know, how could you do this to us? You know, we've been worried sick. And his response is, is strange to them. It may not seem too strange to us because 2,000 years later, we read it back through the lens of our faith, but to them, it makes them scratch their head. And he says, essentially, if, if I could paraphrase it a little bit, why did you not think to look here for me first? Where did you think I would be? Did you not understand that I had to be where? In my, in my father's house. Now that phrase would have sounded more curious to them than it does to us. And we're going to get back to that in a few moments. But we could say, wow, I mean, is it that remarkable that Jesus would be there? And perhaps in a way we would say, well, of course it's not remarkable. I mean, we're talking about the one and only begotten Son of God. You know, this is Jesus. This is Jesus who clearly understood his uniqueness, right? I would never debate that. And yet, at the same time, I would suggest that we should not overlook the impact of a family who built regular religious practice into their family life. We know so little about Mary and Joseph and their family, but I want you to just look again with me at, at the, the, the little bit that the text does tell us. In verse 39, it begins by saying, 
when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They, they had, the, the text has just come from those, that, that month or so after Jesus was born, where they returned to Jerusalem so that they could offer the sacrifice for her purification. Remember, we, we covered that a couple of weeks ago. So they're doing what, what their religion calls for them to do. And again, now they, they, they've done everything that, that would have been normal practice for them. Uh, verse 41 again says what? Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So every year when Passover rolls around, what do they do? They go to Jerusalem, right? Let, let's make a 2,000-year uh, bridge, okay? Because any of you who have been parents to 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds or 9-year-olds, you know, the, the, there's nothing unique about that particular age, you understand what often happens, okay? So imagine if you would... The average 12-year-old child, now I'm not accusing Jesus of having ever said this, so don't call me up after worship. I'm not accusing Jesus of this. Let's just say the average 12-year-old, can you imagine, it, 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 I, it does not surprise me to think that there were parents during that time who heard, do we have to go to Jerusalem again? We were just there a few months ago. Can't we stay home this time? No parent has ever heard things like that, right? Yes, you have. When I was 12, I said it. Do, do we have to go to church again this Sunday? Can't we just stay home? I had a guy in one of my previous congregations, his, his mother, and I'm talking about a grown man, not, not a child. His mother would always tell on him, and she'd say when he was young, he'd say, well, I'm going to go this week, but I'm not going next week. And next week would roll around, and he'd say, I'll go this week, but I'm not going next week. You see, there was, they were doing what so many of us have felt compelled to do, which is to, to build regularity or routine into the life of their family as a way of ingraining within them the importance of their relationship with God. I think, I think that that regularity also was a reason that Jesus as a 12-year-old was able to come to an understanding of who he was in relationship to his heavenly father. Now, yes, I understand Jesus was a unique person. Yes, he was different than the rest of us. But let's not discount the fact that his family helped him to grow 
by building that routine into his life. They didn't disregard it, they observed it. And it helped to shape him into who he was. We as Christian people so often uh, find that we are challenged by other people or we end up challenging ourselves because the routines sometimes lose their meaning. We forget why we do them. We end up feeling like we're in a rut or people accuse us of just being in a rut. We don't like to feel like we're in a rut, do we? Ruts aren't good places to be. You understand what a rut is, right? Like literally speaking, it, and I'm not talking about the breeding habits of animals, it's that deep groove that is worn by like a sharp wagon wheel that constantly is going over the same piece of ground at a time and it, it forms that deep groove and once you get down in that deep groove, it's hard to get the wheel back out of it. And we use that figuratively speaking to those times when we observe routines time and again and then it feels like we go through them and we'd like to break out of it, but we can't seem to break out of it and, and we just feel like we're stuck. Let me offer a definition for you. This doesn't come from Merriam-Webster. It doesn't come from somebody else. It's just where my mind has been this week. Uh, use it if you like. If you don't, fine. A rut may be nothing more than a routine whose purpose has been forgotten. A routine whose purpose has been forgotten. We do things repeatedly for a reason. And if we remember why we do them, there's always a purpose. It's when we forget why we do them that we end up feeling like it's meaningless and we're stuck. If you can take the same idea, use a different word, and the negative connotation typically goes away. If you take the word routine and substitute for it the word discipline, all of a sudden it sounds different to us. Because discipline is what people regularly use to get themselves to another place, to meet a goal, or, or to accomplish something. Athletes do it, people who are looking to be better themselves with their leadership skills, or management skills, or teaching skills. Or, you know, we, we do all kinds of things, and we use discipline to get us there. Back in the days when I was running, preparing for long races. Do you know what I would do first thing in the morning? Sometimes at 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, get up. Put on your running clothes, put on your running shoes, go out, run. The alarm would go off the next morning. And in my brain, I'm thinking, do you really want to go out and run again today? And on some of those days, it would be like in the teens, okay? We're talking, yeah, you know, like in the mountains. Wait, okay. Now, do you think I would rather go out in 20-degree weather and run or lay in a warm bed? That is not a hard choice. But I would get up and go out because there was a purpose behind it. You see, routine is something we use 
to accomplish, to, to get us to something. It has a purpose behind it. If we forget the purpose, then it feels like we're stuck. The Christian life has routine regularly built into it. We do things out of routine, but so often we lose the purpose behind it. We forget. Routine is not a bad thing. You can read so much through the Scripture. Let, let me share uh, like some Scripture references, okay? Don't, don't turn there, but if you were to turn back to Matthew chapter 6, you would find Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he uses language like, when you pray, and uh, when you fast, and when you give to the poor. He doesn't say, if, as if it's, well, if you feel like it, go ahead, and if you don't, don't worry about it. There's, there's the expectation. You will pray. You will give. You will fast. So when you do it, then do these things. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Don't turn there, but I'm just going to read it to you. The, the writer says, Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, there's the word, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Practice of what? Practice of following the commandments and the scripture and the truth of God. We, we practice and we train ourselves to be able to discern. Read with me again. Turn over to 1 Timothy. If you're in your Bible, which you still should be, learn your lesson, never close your Bible when I'm preaching. You're in Luke. Turn a little bit to the back of your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We read part of this earlier. Um, Paul's epistles, you get past Corinthians, past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. This is your Bible drill into the little books of First Timothy. First Timothy. Uh, let me pick up on part of what we read. And, and as I read through these verses, I want you to listen to the, like the tone of, of what Paul is saying to this young, uh, young leader in the church. I'm going to pick up again in verse 7. Paul says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. Let's read on. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying out of hands by the presbytery. Take pains in these things. Listen, hear that? Take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. You can feel the, the, the nature of what Paul is saying to this young Christian man who has been called into leadership. He's, there, don't take your faith casually. 
you do these things and do them and do them over and over again. Take, take pains in, in observing these practices. Build them into who you are. Build them into your leadership in the church. Do them over and over again. That routine is important for the building, your building of faith and for the building of the faith of those around you. I want so much, here's your homework, okay? Write down Deuteronomy chapter 6. Did you write that down? Or you'll remember it, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want so much to go back and read in that chapter, but I'm not because it's going to take too long. When you read Deuteronomy 6, just remember the context of the reading is that the people of Israel have been out of, they're coming out of the wilderness wandering. They're pre prepared to be uh, going into the promised land. These are the, the, this long liturgy of, of final instructions from God to prepare them to go into the promised land. As you read through Deuteronomy 6, you're going to find the theme that just builds into it. Observe these things. Observe these things. Observe these things. Be diligent. Be diligent. Be diligent. You just get it over and over and over again. Build these things into your life so that you do not forget who I am and who you are, and your life will be blessed. You, you will find that theme. It will, it will jump out at you, I promise. Why do we do all these things? Why do we build routine and regularity into the practice of our faith? It, because it's about relationships. It's all so that we as people remember, so that we remember who God is and we remember who we are. In, in so many uh, faith traditions, you will find that if you go into one of their church buildings, one of the things that you will find in, in the entrance way, maybe to the entrance uh, of the building or the entrance to, to the sanctuary, is a baptismal font. And it will be open and it will have water in it. So that every time you pass, those who are baptized into the, into the faith can dip their finger in the water, perhaps make a sign of the cross on your forehead or, or whatever is meaningful. Why do they do it? Because every time you do what? You remember, you remember, you remember, you remember who God is and who you are in Him. It is so critical to what we do. Let's go back to that statement that Jesus made. He's sitting there in the temple. His parents find him. Where have you been? And he says, did you not know that I had to be where? In my father's house. It was not a new thought for the Jewish people to think of God as father. It, it's built into the, their holy text as far back as the Exodus. You can go back into Exodus 4. Moses is sent to uh, Pharaoh, and, and there's, there's language there that talks about Israel as a nation, as my son, my firstborn. And, and many other times through the Old Testament, you'll, you'll find that similar kind of language, referring to the nation of Israel as, as the son that, that the father has begotten. So, so that idea of God as Father is not foreign to them, but it is also true that Jesus 
latches onto that and, and, and takes that relationship to a much more intimate level. And that's why that when you hear him praying, he's using the most intimate of terms as Abba, Father. You know, we would say Dad, Daddy, you know, in those intimate terms. And he even invites his, his, his disciples to, to be drawn into that same level of intimacy. And I believe that even at 12 years old, Jesus was understanding that. That he was uh, growing in an understanding of this, this God in heaven is an intimate father to me. And he was being nurtured in that. And so when he's there, he is not just in God's house. He's in his father's house. That, that relationship is being built in a powerful way. And so should it be for us. Why do we do the things that we do? Over the coming weeks, we're going to look back at some of the things we do. It's actually a sermon series that I shared here in 2017, but that's four years ago, and you've probably forgotten it, haven't you? So we're going to revisit it, and we're going to look very specifically at some of the things that we do as Christians and, and why we do them, why we do them with regularity and with routine. But the answer, the underlying answer to all of it is, it's, it's because of relationship. It's to remember that God has, in Jesus Christ, established us as born-again children of the living God so that we can grow in intimacy with Him and be better prepared to represent Him as we go out into the world. It's just like basic training, ongoing training in the faith by which we remember God, remember whose we are, and prepare ourselves to represent Him in the world. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, I look back at the life of Jesus and I thank you that um, you worked in him in amazing ways. God, what it must have been like to have been his parents, to have uh, seen the things that he did and heard the things that, that he said. Sometimes to sit back and wonder. And yet, as it says that Mary did, that she stored up and treasured all of those things in her heart. It's also amazing, God, that you've called us into such a wonderful relationship with deep intimacy and a great calling upon our lives. Father, I pray that as we continue in our journey, that, that you would help us to remember, not only in remembering just who you are, but Lord, remembering how you've taught us, how you've taught us the that there are so many things that we can do to nurture that relationship with you. And I pray, God, that you would help us not to become weary in doing those things. 
and that you would help us not to lose sight of why we do what we do. And Father, that in all of it that we might be drawn closer to you, that our hearts might be prepared to to be the very presence of Christ as we go from this place into the world. May you and you alone be glorified by our life together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.